today. Let me do one extra announcement that's relevant to the text and what we've been doing in Joshua. Um, this Wednesday, uh, my wife Stephanie, my oldest daughter Sophie, and friend of ours, Emma, who's here in the room as well, uh, all went to set up the Tabernacle Experience um, at Youth for Christ. And if you're not signed up, I highly encourage you to get signed up. So I want to show a picture here uh, of what this looked like so you can get an idea. Because even this morning in the text, we're going to read about the Ark of the Covenant. And you can see that there is a replica. It's not the real thing. We didn't find it of the Ark of the Covenant being walked in, uh, and there's Emma in the front there, and you can see Sophie and Emma are holding the cherubim that go on top of the uh, Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat. Uh, you can kind of get an impression. I, I say this not because I, I normally don't do advertisements like this uh, as we get to the text and as we uh, get to the sermon, but it's so relevant if, as we hear about burnt offerings this morning. You go to this, and you can see right in that top right picture for you uh, that there's the altar of burnt offerings where you smell it as you're sitting through this 40-minute audio experience as you walk through this and you get to throw something in uh, as you pray. It's not an animal. You don't get to throw that in. It's a piece of wood in this case. But you can experience what we read about in the text as we've read about Joshua. They're the ones who are setting this up as they go along wherever God tells them to set this up. It's a remarkable experience worth your time if you haven't signed up and it brings the text to life and points to Jesus as it does so. So I highly recommend you go. It's only here for until the 13th, um, and spots are filling up, so sign up. Um, there is a little cost, but it benefits Youth for Christ. So anyways, that's my advertisement. We're going to turn to the text, to Joshua 8, verses 30 through 35. I invite you to find the text uh, at home, in the room, wherever you are, and however you're reading it this morning, Joshua 8, 30 through 35. By this point, the people have now, they lost at AI, now they've taken AI with God, of course, behind them, and now they're making a covenant renewal at Mount Ebal. So it says, Then Joshua built on Mount Ebal an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the Israelites. He built it according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones on which no iron tool had been used. On it they offered to the Lord burnt offerings and sacrificed fellowship offerings. There in the presence of the Israelites, Joshua wrote on stones a copy of the law of Moses. All the Israelites with their elders, officials, and judges were standing on both sides of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, facing the Levitical priests who carried it. Both the foreigners living among them and the native-born were there. Half of the people stood in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal. As Moses, the servant of the Lord, had formerly commanded when he gave instructions to bless the people of Israel. Afterward, Joshua read all the words of the law, the blessings and the curses, just as it is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua did not read to the whole assembly of Israel, including the women and children and the foreigners who lived among them. This is the word of the Lord. Now, the promise of God, as we read about blessings here and curses, the promise of God is abundant life. It's not just life itself, but it's abundant life. That's the promise of God. And abundant life is a blessing. God, by this point in the story, we can recap it. We could recap it every time we come to different parts of Joshua. Um, they do, certainly. God had delivered the people from bondage in Egypt, had uh, provided for them as they crossed the desert 
uh, provided and then some for them as they crossed the desert, worked with them even when they were unfaithful to him, and now they finally entered the promised land. God is good on his promises. Is anybody thankful for that in the house today? God is good on his promises. He's good on his word. So the promise of God is not just life, but it's abundant life. Abundant life itself is a blessing that God wants us to experience. It turns out, though, that we can easily be deceived because the curse of sin keeps telling us lies about abundant life and what life is really about. The curse of sin will tell us things like, I can get to abundant life without God. The curse of sin will tell us things like, I can uh, have sort of, I can have a measured portion of God that I can turn on and off when I want to, that I can control and I can get to abundant life. Francis Chan, uh, in his book, Crazy Love, he has two remarkable chapters. It's a good book. Um, if you want a free copy, I'll give you one in the back. We have some. But Francis Chan talks about uh, Profile of the Lukewarm is one of his chapters, and then Profile of the Obsessed is the companion chapter later. Remarkable chapters are worth your time. But he points out, among many things, he says, lukewarm people say they love Jesus, and he is indeed a part of their lives, but only a part. They give him a section of their time, their money, and their thoughts, but he isn't allowed to control their lives. And yet, the curse of sin tells us that I can turn it on and off and have just a portion of what God offers, but I can get to abundant life without the rest of him. The curse of sin tells me that I'm on the path to abundant life when I'm actually on the path to loss and destruction. It tells me that I can go that path of loss and destruction, but as long as things kind of seem to go well, well, I'll give that a try. But that's not abundant life. That's not the promise of God. The promise of God is abundant life. Abundant life is a blessing. And what that means is abundant life is actually walking with God. Now, it goes a step further. Later, when we go to the table together, we're going to say as our confession this morning, Romans 10, 9, and 10. So it's going to pop up now. Um, you're welcome to say it with me now, even if you want. But Romans 10, Paul writes, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Now, when it comes to the idea of abundant life as a blessing, abundant life as walking with God, that abundant life doesn't come simply from receiving the care of God. That's an important thing. Abundant life actually comes when we put ourselves under God's authority, not simply his care. When we hand over our sovereignty to his, that's when it can begin. That's, of course, done through Jesus Christ. That's what the people are renewing today, is they're putting themselves under God's authority in this renewal of the covenant ceremony together. May that be our challenge today as well, to put ourselves under God's authority as first time or renewal today. Now, as you read this, it probably hits our ears weird, as a lot of this sometimes does, because we don't sacrifice like they did. We don't do a lot of blessings and curses. I mean, maybe the closest thing we get to blessings and curses is when you fill out a homeowner's, con homeowners association contract or a cell phone contract or something. It seems like it's got a lot more curses than blessings, I feel like, when some of those... 
um, if you do this, then this is going to happen. But in the ancient world, something like what we're seeing uh, was widely used a blessing and curses kind of thing as a treaty is usually what it came about as. So a treaty between two parties as they're trying to make peace, essentially, you'd write blessings. It's going to go well for us if we do this. You write curses. It's a little different with what God's doing here, only because it's, it's a covenant renewal. So God had covenanted with Abraham, and it had continued on through his family line with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember those names. Uh, that he was going to bless the world through Abraham's family line and basically call the world to himself through that family line. That's the continuation of the story we're having here. That covenant still stands. And what's interesting is we might not really think much about Mount Ebal and Mount uh, Gerizim. They do, uh, Gerizim comes uh, into play later in Scripture, um, but the, the location of Shechem is where they're making this altar, which is interesting because Shechem, by the end of Joshua, will have appeared four times throughout Scripture. Uh, in Genesis, three times, and then two times, five times, excuse me. Uh, twice in Joshua, I kind of counted them as once. But twice in Joshua, three times in Genesis is what happens. And we can look at, at each of those moments really quickly. I won't give you all the details, but the first one, uh, Shechem in Genesis 12, Shechem is a place of promise for Abraham. God had made in Genesis 12 the covenant with Abraham, or Abram, as he was called at that point. And shortly after that covenant is stated, God, uh, it says in verse 6, Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. So it was a place of promise, this place where they're setting up this altar. Then it becomes a place of dishonor by Genesis 34. So remember, it's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the family line of the covenant as it continues on. It's Jacob, the third in that line. His daughter Dinah, uh, she's forcibly taken at Shechem and mistreated in the process uh, by a guy named Shechem, as it turns out, who is a local ruler of the area. And then read it for yourself later. Um, it, it's interesting, for sure, disheartening at times, but the, the revenge of Jacob's sons involves circumcision and deceit after that. Um, and then what happens in the next chapter, so there's a place of dishonor, but then the next chapter, Genesis 35, it becomes a place of recommitment for Jacob and his sons. And this is one of those interesting things to just keep in mind as well as we go on. Jacob tells all of his family, hey, we're going to take all of our household idols because we shouldn't have those anyways, and we're going to bury them under the oak at Shechem. So we're done with those, and we're just worshiping God. You would think they would have gotten the memo before, but that's what they do at Shechem. So it becomes a place of recommitment. So it's the place where, where the original uh, the covenant was formed. Abraham worshiped God there after the covenant. It's a place of dishonor, but then it becomes a place of recommitment on the heels of that dishonor, and now it becomes a place of covenant renewal, where it all started. Now they renew that covenant with God, and they'll do that both in this chapter and in Joshua 24. You'll hear that in a few weeks. And it's the blessings and the curses. I'm not going to read them for you this morning. They're in Deuteronomy 27 and 28, and they're worth your time to read this afternoon. But basically, if we just kind of give some definition to what these things are, blessing, uh, kind of, there could be a lot of things we could say about blessing, but it's essentially bestowing a good or a gift on someone else without expecting anything in return. That's a basic sense of blessing. A blessing can be done peer to peer, so sort of equals, 
in stature. It can be done from a, a lesser to a greater and a greater to a lesser. It can be done all kinds of different ways that a blessing can happen. We all can and should bless one another this morning. We should bless one another with uh, encouragement, words of encouragement. I would suggest that a word of encouragement is worth a lot. I mean, anybody else you know that makes or breaks the day sometimes is if somebody encourages something that you've done or gives a compliment to you sometimes. A word of encouragement, well-placed especially, can mean an awful lot to someone, can keep them going for a long time. So we can bless one another by that. You can bless somebody with gifts, whether tangible or intangible. You can bless someone when you do something that they couldn't have done themselves. That can be a blessing. We can bless God. So that's a lesser to a greater. We can bless God, and we should with our worship, right? As we sing out, uh, that God doesn't need our worship. God's complete without our worship. Our worship actually does more for us than God in a sense, not that we're worshiping ourselves, but God doesn't need it, but we glorify God through our worship. We glorify God as we compliment and encourage one another, people made in the image of God. We glorify God with humility before him and putting ourselves under his authority so we can bless God that way. And then, of course, God blesses us, as we've already covered. God blesses us with life itself, but God wants to bless us further with abundant life. A curse, then, is the opposite in many ways of that, and there can be sort of a passive and, a, and a, an active form of a curse, maybe an active form of curse. We think of uh, wanting to invoke harm on someone, call down judgment uh, on someone or a people for something, or wish, wish misfortune, say that five times fast, wish misfortune on someone, or against another person. It can be passive as well, a curse if it's simply withholding or not doing something we should have done sort of in a passive aggressive way. That might be a way that we could think of somebody cursing another person. Not every passive aggressive action would be a curse, but it could be. Um, Deuteronomy 27 and 28, as I said, is where we see these blessings and these curses, and the blessings are great. The blessings are wonderful that God's going to give the people the abundance. You're going to see from womb to crop to livestock. You're going to see even an evening walk. You're going to see God's richness and blessings in ways you couldn't imagine. If you put yourself under my authority and continue to follow the covenant. But the curse is the opposite, of course, of that. Everything like that is going to go horribly wrong. And part of it starts with sort of a passive going wrong. Uh, a... Uh, Things are just going to get disorderly. Basically, God's going to withhold his hand, in a sense, and not hold back the bad things that could have come. And then its confusion is going to set in, but then it gets more active. Disease, uh, destruction, and enemies will abound and take things that you planted. You're not going to be able to eat them. People that you plan to marry, they're going to marry them instead. It gets pretty bad if you dishonor the covenant and reject it. So when you consider that, when you consider the blessings and the curses, when you consider all that God has done for Israel at this point, all that God's done to bring them to this place where they're sitting on Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, right on the edges of those mountains, making sacrifice, the uh, fellowship offerings and the burnt offerings, doesn't it seem almost stupid that God has to remind them of the covenant, that he's their covenant God, the one God, and you should follow me, the one God, and follow the covenant that brought you to this point? Doesn't it seem like that's information they should remember and never forget? And yet we know the story. We know that in the story they constantly forget. And it's easy to point the finger and look at them and then realize that we can do the exact same things. 
I had a conversation a few years ago with somebody who was trying to tell me, you know, why, do we, why are you paying attention to that book that's 2,000 plus years old? Haven't we moved on by this point? There must be other information that we can utilize to live life. We don't need that Bible thing. And trying to, in that argument, trying to say also, you know, we were talking about sin for a little bit, and they said, well, if it's, if it's sin at all, we're, we're doing different things now than we were doing back then. To which I countered, are we really? I feel like lust is still lust, greed is still greed. We're not actually that innovative in those departments as much as we think we are. We're still doing the same stuff. We're still forgetting God, and even those of us who follow Jesus Christ, if I may point out, we probably have idols mentally and even maybe physically in our homes that we need to bury under the oak as well. We are worshiping other things sometimes. We forget, we sin, we turn from God. It's easy to forget if we're not active and if we don't renew. We need to renew as much as they needed to renew. And there's some level of courage required in that of our part. Because what they're doing is they're relinquishing their own sovereignty and authority under God's is what they're doing. And I gotta tell you, as humans, that's a struggle for us, isn't it? I wanna be in charge. But no, God needs to be in charge. God needs to be my authority in all things. It takes some level of courage, I think, to make that commitment and that renewal because we have to relinquish what we should relinquish in the first place. We're designed to live under God's authority, not our own. Disciples, we follow Jesus Christ. You and I have been blessed. We've been blessed by the living God through Jesus Christ if we follow him. We've been given eternal life. Isn't that a blessing? We've been given eternal life, and it begins when you start following Jesus. That starts. The clock starts ticking, if there is even a clock, right? There wouldn't be if it's eternal. We also don't just get eternal life if we follow Jesus Christ. We've been given the keys to the kingdom of God, for goodness sakes, to call people in and call them home. And it takes some level of courage to live out that mission in the world, which is kind of crazy that to live out the blessing of God in our culture still takes courage because it isn't always welcomed as a good word. But the first courageous act, not even in living the mission, the first courageous act is to choose to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. The second courageous act is to continue to renew that commitment, to make sure we don't have any gods that we're worshiping instead of Jesus, and to make sure that We live under his authority and his authority alone. The promise of God is abundant life. That abundant life is a blessing. And we know that it starts with Jesus Christ. Now, how do we live as disciples who are blessed then in the world? I want to give two thoughts on that. Two New Testament passages that will look back to our passage that we're reading in Joshua this morning. The first one comes from 1 Peter 3, 8 and 9. Peter writes, finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. We honor and glorify God with our actions, among so many other things. Now, that could probably be said every week in every sermon. We honor and glorify God in our actions. But it really is down to the relationship that we have that's going to be the motivating factor in how we live that out. 
So if you look back at Joshua, you see that there are two types of offerings that they offer on Mount Ebal at the altar there. One is the burnt offering, one is the fellowship offering. Since we don't offer offerings in that way, sometimes it's very confusing to know what's the wave offering, the sin offering, the burnt offering, the fellowship offering, and all those different offerings. But let me just tell you about the burnt offering for a moment. And again, go to the tabernacle experience and go smell it for yourself. It's, it's remarkable to just experience that. But the burnt offerings, uh, what they would do is take the animal and they would tie the animal to the actual alt the horns of the altar, put their head on the altar. And what they're doing is then they're transferring their sin onto the animal who's then going to take the sin for them. The idea is it's an atonement offering. So atonement, atonement, putting together a broken thing, particularly this relationship that's been broken by sin and the penalty for sin is death. That's what, that's what we should get. That's what we deserve for breaking that relationship with the giver of life. They would tie the animal to the altar. They would sacrifice the animal, kill the animal after putting the hand on the head, transferring uh, their sin to the animal symbolically. And the question becomes, I think, as we consider... Uh, putting ourselves sort of on the, the altar before Christ and giving ourselves under his authority is, are we interested in right relationship with God if we follow Jesus Christ, or are we simply interested in avoiding the penalty of sin? Because there's a difference. The atonement offering is an offering of putting back together the relationship with God, and of course that comes with the removal of sin. It needs to come with that. But if the interest is simply to avoid the penalty of sin, but not actually to build the relationship with God, then we're not going to be very faithful at following Jesus. We're not going to honor and glorify God in our actions. We're going to honor and glorify ourselves with the actions and turn on and off the spigot of God's presence as we like and not live under his sovereignty and authority. The atonement offering that they gave was to put right, to right the relationship. And that's the atonement offering we have through Jesus Christ is to put to right this relationship with God, not simply to avoid the penalty and consequence of sin. That's a byproduct of it. The way this looks out in the real world, just to give you a somewhat extreme example, um, this week I got the latest issue of Voice of the Martyrs. I don't know if anybody subscribes to it, but I enjoy reading it. Um, I, I, I don't want to say I enjoy hearing the stories of persecuted Christians in the world. I am heartened by those around the world who suffer for faith in Jesus Christ and continue on. And this one particularly had a number of articles of widows who were carrying on, who had lost their husbands uh, in service together in ministry to Jesus Christ. And in more than one case, as they carry on, they say, you know what, life is now harder. But they say, but we did this ministry for Jesus Christ and I even want my husband's killers to be part of the kingdom and come to know him. That's why we did this. That is what it means to put yourself under the authority of Jesus Christ and honor and glorify him in our actions at every level. We recognize that he is our hope, not anything in this world. As we consider the burnt offering piece of that, a burnt offering as well was a total offering. So to make the distinction, uh, a fellowship offering, again, because we don't do these, we wouldn't know. Fellowship offering is functionally a potluck in the ancient world. So they would take the animal, they would sacrifice the animal, the, the blood's drained from the animal, um, and then part, a portion of the animal is burnt, 
that happens in many offerings, but not much of it. A portion of the animal is given to the Levites for their, to sustain them. And then the majority of the animal is cooked and eaten by the people together to enjoy the fellowship, it's in the name, of one another and the bounty that God has given them. So part of it's given, much like we give a portion of what God has given us in income and in time and those sorts of things. That's what they're doing. Um, but in a burnt offering, as an atonement offering, the whole animal is given up in that offering. And it's not simply, it's not as simple as just they drain the blood of the animal. I mean, it's, it's just standard uh, job of butchers, what a lot of the Levites and priests were doing in many ways, although it's more than that. You'd kill the animal, they drain the blood, they sprinkle the blood on the altar. The blood is life, that's what's represented. The life has been taken for the person who put their sin on the animal. Um, and then they take out the organs, they'd clean the animal, they'd skin the animal, not in that order, they do it in the other order, and then they burn it all. So, I mean, there's been a lot of work that goes into simply burning this offering. It's a reminder among so many things that sin is costly. Right? This animal is worth a lot. It's first usually the male animal without defect, so it's a valuable animal in that culture. It's worth a lot. They go through a lot of effort to fix it up so they can simply burn it. Our sin is like that. Now, we don't do burnt offerings anymore. We don't do fellowship offerings, although we do do potlucks, so that's close, right? <laughs> but what we do instead is we're supposed to give ourselves over entirely on the altar to God through Jesus Christ, a living sacrifice, as we're told in the New Testament, wholly given under the authority of God. We do that by confessing, by repenting, by receiving the forgiveness of Jesus Christ and his blood on the altar, covering us and taking away our sin. And then we live as Christ's own in a repaired relationship not simply avoiding the penalty of sin. That's what a disciple does. And we live together encouraging one another and, and showing that to the world, not repaying evil with evil, but evil with blessing in the world because we have been changed and blessed from the inside out. The other uh, verse I want to bring to us is Hebrews 10, 24 through 27. So we honor God in our actions as disciples of Jesus Christ, certainly. <clears throat> but Hebrews 10, 24 through 27 says, And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice is left for sin, for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. As we consider blessing and curse, and both, interestingly, both the Abraham passage that we read in Genesis and even here has a little blessing curse mixed in there, if you notice, the, the consequences of uh, sort of rejecting the blood of Christ in our actions. Can we be cursed today? Or maybe a different question, can we curse others today, whether intentionally or unintentionally? I was considering this this week because there's a real passive sense of cursing and maybe it seems too strong but when we ignore the holy spirit and we withhold our testimony of god's goodness to those who are far from god are we cursing others unintentionally 
when churches have full bank accounts but don't use it at all for ministry purposes whatsoever, are we unintentionally cursing those who are far from God? You know, if when all of our time and our energy is spent on people who are in the kingdom but not outside of the kingdom, are we unintentionally cursing those who are far from God? When we're focused on the methods when we're focused on the facility, when we're focused on the mechanics of doing church rather than the mission, are we unintentionally cursing those who are far from God? It might seem really strong. I was struck with that this week. And it really struck me as I considered the altar that they built. The altar was of uncut stones. And we can't make too much of this, but we can make something of it. The altar was of uncut stones, and scholars have a couple different ways of kind of trying to understand that because there's no real explanation given in Deuteronomy or here as to why that's the case. At, for my first thought would be that it's because uh, you don't want to put the honor on the person who built it and carved it with the stone tools. There's a little bit of that there, but it seems to have more to do with the idea that it's temporary and that that's not the mission, is not to go and sacrifice there. God's got more in store. God's got a mission that's, that's beyond this moment. And we're not going to make a shrine out of this, that this is the place we have to do mission. If, if you've noticed, Shechem is where Abraham sacrificed after the covenant was made, but they're not sacrificing at Abraham's altar. It's gone by that point. It was temporary. There's something about that, that it's not tied to the skill of the craftsman, but of the renewal of the relationship and the mission that God has called them to, not the place. The place is just the launching point. I, I think, as I was thinking about this this week, as I was thinking about a church that I know that years ago was offered uh, an opportunity to, um, by a much, much larger church across the street, they were offered an opportunity to sell their building to that church across the street for a great deal. They weren't tied to the neighborhood. They weren't really doing ministry in the neighborhood at all. It was a great chance to reinvent themselves and instead of taking the offer, they said, no, we're not going to take that offer because we built this building with our hands. We put it together brick by brick in some cases, and this is the building where we're going to do ministry. But they weren't tied to the neighborhood. It was a tough neighborhood, and they're not doing so well at this point because they're focused on the, the facility, not the mission. We bless God by looking out those who are far from God and calling them in. We bless God when we don't just look at what we have, but who God has called us to reach for his kingdom purposes. Disciples who make disciples, that's who we are. We definitely do encourage one another, just as Hebrews tells us. We spur one another on towards love and good deeds. We encourage each other as the body of Christ. Absolutely, that's the disciples one another. We need to grow together. But disciples who make disciples also share their stories and look for opportunities to share their stories with those who are far from God. Not just passively, but actively. Disciples who make disciples are constantly thinking of ways to innovate and organize so that we can reach more people and invite them into the kingdom of God because we're mission-focused, not method-focused. We, if we're disciples who make disciples, must be known by our ability to bless as God has blessed us to those in and outside, looking out, to call people home. That's who we are. We're calling them to the abundant life that God has started in us, the blessing that God has started in us.
That's our mission. That's our call as disciples who make disciples. So we're going to go to the table in just a moment, and I just want to take about a minute to pray here, and then we'll be able to pray for confession and forgiveness at the table. But just take a minute to pray here, and I, I want you to pray for God to reveal to you who you need to encourage this morning and who are people in your life that you need to call into kingdom life and begin that process. Let's pray together. Take some silence first to ask the Lord. Lord, who in this house needs your word of encouragement this morning? Put on us the word of encouragement for others who are disciples within the doors of the church right now, those who are online right now encouraging one another. Put on our hearts who we need to encourage this morning and build one another up as your body. God, also put on our hearts who we need to share the testimony of your goodness and blessing in our lives with. Who are people that we know in this world, in this community, who are far from God, and we're the voice that you've given to call them home? We might be one of many, but we're still one of those voices, Lord. Who can we call home that they can find your abundant life found nowhere else? This we pray in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.